Hey, everyone. Next week, we'll be back with a regular Dirtbag Diaries. But in the meantime, I wanted to share a project I have been really psyched about doing from our other podcast, Climbing Gold. And I know not all of you are crazy into climbing, but this is a story that stretches well beyond that. In 1976, a plane carrying $4 million of marijuana crashed in the Yosemite high country. And our Dope Lake series tells a story about how a group of ragtag climbers and misfits ended up launching a full-on salvage operation. It's a pretty incredible story, sort of true crime meets the outdoors. I hope you enjoy it. All four episodes are out now, so if you like the first one, because I think you will, (laughs) you can get all the rest right now. Check it out. December 9th, 1976. Pilot John Gliske and his co-pilot John Nelson have just crossed from Mexico into U.S. airspace, just south of San Diego. They began their day in Vegas before flying south to a dirt runway in Baja. Airplanes clean, speed's good, climb power 3523. 3523, here we go. The duo, who are flying a converted World War II-era Lockheed Lodestar, known as a Howard 500, make a beeline for the coast. In previous times, the plane had shuttled business executives across the country. Today's cargo was decidedly different. So they flew up to Santa Barbara. They hung a right, which is now due north. The purpose was to fly toward just north of Carson City. This is Rick Schloss, author and researcher who went to high school with Klitschke. And if you draw a line from about just north of, uh, say, Santa Barbara or Ventura to uh, Carson City, you're going to see that that line goes over the southeast end of Yosemite, where Lower Merced Pass Lake is. Now, over the Central Valley and sparsely populated farmland, Gliske, who's flown helicopters in the Vietnam War, knew what he was doing. He'd flown hundreds of missions. He cuts the navigation lights as darkness falls. And so these guys don't want to be seen on radars. They're used to flying below the radar with all their training in Vietnam. The plane vanishes from prying eyes. Radar in the 1970s wasn't nearly as sophisticated as today, so Glissy's got to disappear for a little bit to throw off anyone who might be tracking the Howard 500. Glissy is known to authorities. So they're flying this thing at roughly 50 to 60 feet across the Central Valley of California, you know, 350 miles an hour or so. So you can imagine at one or two o'clock in the morning, this thing flying over your house at that speed with two engines and they got four bladed propellers on them. Gliske, 31 years old, and with a square jaw like John Wayne, angles the plane towards the foothills of the Sierra, up and up, climbing with the mountains. The terrain now is illuminated by the soft glow of moonlight. He's wild and brave and maybe a little crazy, a product of the times. There's a damaged oil fitting on the left engine. It's leaking oil. Gliske knows this, but for whatever reason, whether it's a lack of time or concern, he has not completed the repair. They then head uh, across the Sierra Nevada. That's Butch Faraby, a longtime Yosemite Valley Ranger who was working in the park in the winter of 1976. And they start going up, going north along the uh, Sierra Nevada ridgeline. Winter had been slow to come to California that year, so there's no snow yet, but thin layers of black ice cover the alpine lakes. 
the plane slides over Yosemite Valley, the hooded figure of Half Dome would have likely been visible in the distance. Beneath the plane, the valley, where the diehards of the climbing revolution are wintering in Camp 4. The plane continues climbing, bound for Carson City, Nevada. Still flying dangerously low, the aircraft nears the range's crest when it all goes wrong. And this engine that has given them trouble starts to falter and it, it goes dead. So close to the ground, there's no wiggle room. With one engine out, the Howard 500 would lose 50% of its power, but the drag of a stalled propeller would reduce the plane's performance by up to 80%, potentially making it impossible to climb. So they have one engine and, uh, you know, the plane is a pretty good sized aircraft. It's got maybe a thousand gallons of fuel on board and it's about a dozen miles south of Yosemite Valley, uh, close to Ostrander Lake. The left wing dropped a little and that's what caught the trees. First, the plane strikes the trees, ripping one of the wings off. The aircraft travels another quarter of a mile in the air. Then the plane, because it didn't have lift on the left side anymore, would have corkscrewed over the body, the fuselage. But because it was so low, it only got a chance to corkscrew over one time. And as it corkscrewed, the tail or the vertical stabilizer was ripped off. In a catastrophic spin, the plane smashed through the top of the sparse forest, sending debris flying through the trees and talus. Now the plane is upside down and it can't get a chance to corkscrew anymore because it's so low in altitude, it's shaving off trees. The plane can't stay in the air. And it goes right into the drink. What's left of the plane smashes through the ice of a shallow, unnotable lake in Yosemite National Park. It ends up crashing into Lower Merced Pass Lake. And I generally affectionately refer to it as Dope Lake. Spread across the surrounding forest and meadows, floating to the surface of the lake, is the Howard 500's cargo. They've got, you know, roughly, say, 6,000 pounds worth of marijuana on board. 6,000 pounds of 1970s Mexican red hair weed worth three to four million dollars in today's money. And a black notebook with dozens of numbers scrawled into it. And after this crazy moment of mechanical violence, the high country goes silent again. The moonlight keeps shining. The ice begins to reform around the plane and no one knows it's there. Today, we present chapter one of Dope Lake, a four-part series on one of climbing's most unbelievable true stories. Sometimes life is stranger than fiction. I'm Alex Arnold. I'm Fitz Cahal. And I'm Lauren Delaney Miller. This is Climbing Gold. America's public enemy number one in the United States 
is drug abuse. It's like finding buried treasure. It was, it was like it fell from heaven. Well, what we did really fully appreciate was the entrepreneurial nature of the local climbers. Holy shit. There's an airplane and it's full of marijuana. Next question. Chapter one, Misfits. Yeah, my name's John Long. I'm from Southern California. I was born in NDO, way down past Joshua Tree, and I grew up in Upland, which is about 100 miles uh, west of there. It's just a little bedroom community about 45 miles east of Los Angeles. And, and what was it like the first time you went to Yosemite, and, you know, how did, how did it feel to see real big walls? I can't put words to that. I think the, the best way to introduce John Long is that he's one of the original Stone Masters, you know, visionary climber, put up roots all over the world, but then really transitioned into a sort of a raconteur, like a, like a storyteller of climbing. You know, not only is he a visionary climber, but he has really contributed to climbing knowledge, sort of the, the library of climbing knowledge out there. In the mid-1970s, climbing's renaissance in America was in full swing in California. In the previous decade, the 1960s, names like Royal Robbins, Chuck Pratt, and Yvonne Chouinard were making their impact on El Cap, climbing unimaginable walls. The 1970s, though, a younger generation of teenagers and 20-somethings revolutionized the art of free climbing. They took wall climbing to the next level. It was about going harder and faster, teetering on the fine line between control and reckless abandon. The Stone Masters started out, you know, with people in John Long's orbit. That's Rick Akamazo one of John Long's high school buddies and one of the original Stone Masters. So in the 70s, Long was part of a core group of young climbers who, you know, are pushing the limits of climbing. Yosemite is the proving ground. They were faster, stronger, and definitely higher than the generation before. They were free climbers. John was such a charismatic character that when he did his bouldering circuit in in, uh, Hidden Valley Campground in Joshua Tree, People would just follow him. There would be a, later on, there would be a crowd of people just watching him. First, because he was really good, but second, because he's such a charismatic, fun to be around person. And so he was just entertaining. And um, so I, I think the Stone Masters really kind of revolved around John Long. What stood out about him, uh, you know, in the 70s? Well, he was boisterous. That's Vern Clevenger, a photographer and part of the Stone Master scene in the 1970s. You'll hear more about Vern throughout the next few episodes. He was obviously intelligent and was going to be a writer. I knew it even then. So off the top of my head, that's what I can say. He had the bluster. He had the charisma of, of a Muhammad Ali, but he could back it up just like Muhammad Ali could back it up with his fist. John, John could back it up with his, uh, with his talent because he was, he was a very good climber. I get, yeah, I think, I think John Long is, is a larger-than-life climbing character. And I think he's definitely, his writing has definitely made him a larger-than-life climbing character. <laughs> yeah, yeah, John Long has never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Long and his small band of misfits would spearhead the movement. We'll be back with more after the break. Um, Alex, in the beginning, how did one become a stone master? So one became a stone master by climbing the route Valhalla, which is a fairly difficult technical three-pitch slab at Takeeds outside of Los Angeles. 
you know, by modern standards, it's not that hard. But for 1970s, it's pretty hard face climbing. As Rick remembers it, climbing Valhalla wasn't the only way to become a stone master. If somebody smoked a lot of marijuana, well, he, he was a stone master too. That, that guy's a real stone master. So you're saying that the stone masters, they smoked too much weed and they slap climbed at a high level. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, more or less. Originally, it was just a nuclear core group of about a dozen people from Southern California, which had a few things in common. One, we had a, you have to have a venue, and we had a bunch of those. We had Joshua Tree, we had Suicide, we had Big Rock, we had Talk Each Rock. So we had places to do that, you know, to actually practice the sport. And all of a sudden things started, you know, it started snowballing and it had the snowball effect. And of course, the character of all of those people in the in the original Stonemaster group was they were all outdoor people. They're all athletes. They all love to go climbing. But of the extant sort of institutions that a climber could get into, Sierra Club, Sierra Club, Sierra Club, you know, you know there wasn't much. And none of us fit in with, we're too, everybody was too much of a misfit to be able to fit into any of those things. That, so we just ended up just sort of in a, in a very disorganized way, just sort of inaugurated our own deal. And that's what the, that's what the stone masters were. Yeah, people were drawn into the idea of stone masters, not just the simple group itself. This is Mari Gingri, one of the original stone masters. Yes, it was a small group of climbers that originally started the stone master concept, but it was sort of a thing that was broadly applied to anybody who had the interest in joining in. Everybody wanted to climb Valhalla for that reason, you know, to show that you were up to the snuff, you know, you could, you could participate at that level. And so Valhalla was sort of the entry thing. At some point, the in, you know, it wasn't like a hard and fast rule or anything. It was just that you wanted to keep up with whatever the highest standard was. And everybody was drawn to whatever that was at the time. And it always changed. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got into it? I did start climbing in Southern California. In the 1970s, there was kind of a interest in backpacking. So there was a backpacking fad. And um, <clears throat> so a lot of people were interested in the outdoors because of that. And climbing, mountaineering was just kind of the pinnacle of backpacking. You know, it's like instead of walking around in the meadows, you're going for the peaks and things. And rock climbing was just starting to kind of become visible through people like Robbins and Chenard and Harding and their um, carryings on in Yosemite. So Yosemite was obviously the center of focus of rock climbing at the world in that time. See, I started as a boulderer at Indian Rock. I just bouldered. And then Bidwell came, Galen Rao came. They told me to go to Yosemite. So I did. So Dale Bard was a great climber from the 70s and 80s, put up a lot of roots in Yosemite and around the West. I showed up in 70 with a two-man tent, sleeping bag, no rack, pair of shoes, and a chalk bag. When you, were, when you hitchhiked to the valley, like how much money did you have in your, in your wallet? One. One dollar? That's it. Like what did the group represent, I guess? The ideal of giving up something to gain something, 
that was more valuable. So you gave up things like um, material wealth. Nobody had any money. Everybody drove a beater car. Some people didn't even have sleeping bags. They just sleep on the ground in a blanket. But there was this ideal that somehow you were pursuing something that was um, more personally valuable to your life than anything the traditional world offered. I mean, it was about achieving excellence. And you weren't going to do it unless you tried really hard. And trying really hard meant bringing all the parts together, you know, to try and put the whole package of, you know, what can I do in this environment with these ground rules? And uh, the ground rules were stripped down to where there was like, you didn't get much assistance, you know, maybe a chalk bag. Sometimes you had a rope, <laughs> you know, that was hopeful, you know, most of the time you had a rope, but um, not always. So it was a very pure, essential kind of drive to be excellent at this particular weird form of athleticism. To accomplish things that haven't been done before, to think totally outside the box and do something totally new, requires a degree of, of self-confidence and, and, and vision that sort of by definition means that you have a big personality. You know, like you're just somehow a little bit different and you're confident enough to act on that difference. And so from an outside perspective, you seem like a bit of an iconoclast or an eccentric or whatever else. So I think that the fact that a lot of the stone masters, nowadays when you meet a lot of the, the original stone masters, you're like, wow, that guy's got a big personality. You know, but you're like, really, that guy is just, is just a character, you know, a unique person who has like a, like a fully self-actualized person or whatever, you know, someone who's really gone down their own path and done exactly what they think they're capable of doing. It's almost like they were there to become legends. Nobody survived if they weren't a big personality, I think. It wasn't a place for meek people. And climbing offered this opportunity to test yourself against the world. You know, what did you have? Were you just a, you know, a frightened little thing in the corner, a sheep that was going to follow along? Or did you have ideas that could maybe sort of be developed through this weird thing of rock climbing where you would train your mind and train your body and somehow that was going to lead you someplace you didn't know where but it was a, a thought it was an incredible time when yosemite was the place to be unfortunately i was already there naturally anyway if you wanted to climb and be noticed and in those kind of years i wanted to be noticed that was a lot of the motivation of climbing uh that was the place to be what role did style play in the whole thing John Bowker used to have a, a baby blue sequin shirt that he'd solo around um, in uh, Joshua Tree in, you know, and it's this really nice, you know, like an, somebody's evening shirt or something. But, you know, he would have a T-shirt that was like a tuxedo T-shirt and he'd wear a top hat. So that was, you know, there was a sense of style, definitely. And I think even how you climbed, you know, you didn't want to like grovel around going over the top of a mantle or something and like roll over like whale. You wanted to have this elegant way of doing everything so that it looked sharp. You looked sharp, you looked sharp climbing. Yeah, I think about that even today. I feel like it's kind of a California thing to be like, oh, it's not just doing the thing, it's doing it and making it look easy, you know, or like making it look good. Right, it was, and gymnastics has that too, you know, you don't want to have your toes not pointed and stuff like that. And people would do that. They would do these elegant boulder problems with their toes pointed and their hands, you know, just like, just so. And it looked beautiful. It's like ballet. Somehow, so many of the stone masters were also just like great storytellers. Like not just that they were doing cool things, but that they were like good at 
I don't know, telling a good like campfire story. Well, you know, before the internet, that's all there was. You know, if you wanted to learn anything about climbing, you learned it from someone telling you a story, going climbing at a campfire, at a belay, sitting at the base. Every story prior to the internet was told in that oral tradition. So people who listened to the stories understood that's the way you communicated your story too. You know, climbing has a long literature history of people telling their stories. We'll be back with more after the break. As we were saying, let's just start at the beginning. You want to give us your name and uh, your title and, you know, where you live? Just a quick intro. My title is retired. That's Butch Faraby, a 35-year veteran of the National Park Service, who you heard from at the beginning of the episode. Faraby was a ranger in Yosemite during the 1970s. So tell us about your time working in Yosemite. Well, it was nine and a half years. Uh, sort of the golden era of the hippie time in Yosemite, uh, 1971 to 81. Uh, I was a, you know, a field ranger, and then over that nine years, I, I sort of worked my way up a little bit. Uh, but um, most of that time was in Yosemite Valley, and in those days, the rangers did a little bit of everything. For Butch, a little bit of everything meant assisting with structural wildland firefighters one day, maybe a little bit of search and rescue the other day. And this, of course, was interspersed with a good dose of law enforcement. It didn't take long for Farabee to become acquainted with the climbers of Camp 4. Camp 4 was the center for, for climbing. This is Tim Setnick, another National Park Service ranger who first arrived at Yosemite in 1970 and went on to become the director of search and rescue. At that time, it was like, if you could get a tent or sleeping bag in a campground, you could stay there. And there, there were seven-day camping limits that were imposed for years. No way of enforcing them. No way of forcing six people to, per campsite. And in the beginning, the rangers were told to kind of keep a lookout for the dirtbag climbers that occupied Camp 4. But as they went through it, they understood there was something bigger there going on than just a bunch of hippies getting stoned. On one of his first days, Tim's coworker told him something. Thompson said, you, you see those that short guy over there? I said, yeah. He says, well, he says, that's Yvonne Chouinard. He says, he occasionally sells equipment out of the back of his car. He's cool. We have better things to do than worry about, you know, him selling his gear. I said, got it. Okay. The late 60s and early 70s were the height of the hippie and drug culture in the United States. And most of the climbers, whether they did drugs or not, looked like hippies, at least in the ranger's eyes. And that could cause problems. It was easy to confuse, you know, they all looked the same, so we treated them all the same. And, and that was a big mistake. Our national parks have always been this reflection of the greater American cultural landscape. And in the 1960s and, and early 70s, Yosemite was experiencing the same cultural tensions that were existing everywhere, really. Um, there were a bunch of long-haired people that didn't have an interest in following the same sets of rules that the older generation did. And for a bit, they kind of worked through it all. But as visitation crept up, you know, of course, there's like also sort of this back to the land movement. There's sort of people getting out in nature. As that all sort of built up by the end of the 1960s, change was on the horizon. 
it was a massive influx of just young folks, you know, uh, at that time called quote unquote counterculture that came into the park and the park service had actually no way of managing them. The seventies is the tail end of the sixties, you know, and all of that culture of the sixties, it didn't just disappear in 1969. It, drifted for many, many years and before it finally vaporized someplace in the 70s. And back then, you know, that was the war on drugs. That was Nixon's war on drugs. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. Alex, do you remember um, all like the the say no to drugs ads as a kid. Yeah, no, I, I remember the dare commercials and yeah, this is your brain on drugs. and Yeah, so like the, those were all part of this war on drugs that President Nixon launched. Politically, he was a pretty vindictive person and he had always been at odds with the anti-war movement, the hippies, right? And the civil rights movement, the African-American community. And so in 1970, he starts this war on drugs. And so they criminalized the, the drugs of choice, marijuana and cocaine, and tried to put them in jail. That's, that's established. Haldeman, who was one of the assistants to uh, Nixon, admitted that years after the fact that the reason for the war on drugs that Nixon really prosecuted in a big way was to put their political enemies in jail. I wouldn't say it was a central part of the culture, but it was unavoidable because California at that period of time was permeated in what was a subculture at one time that was coming into the mainstream. So it just washed over the whole culture of California in an unavoidable way. Marijuana was now a part of the Schedule One controlled substances in the eyes of the federal government. And Yosemite, as a park, was under federal jurisdiction. On busy periods, there were intermittent roadblocks that targeted quote-unquote alternative user groups. The tension came to a head in the Stoneman Meadow Riot, which we'll get into in part two. The Stonemasters definitely fit the profile of alternative user group. Basically, nowadays, it's it's all pretty amicable. And like some rangers climb, everybody's on pretty friendly terms. It's all it's all pretty nice. You know, how, how did it feel in the 70s and it was strange. It was always adversarial. The, the, the rangers didn't like the climbers because they were dirtbags and they were shoplifting from the from the store and and avoiding having to pay for camping, which there was a small fee at Camp Four, I think, during part of that time. Well, there was always the you know the underlying problem was always the camping limits, and you know certain people like uh, the rescue site, for example took a lot of refugees in and shielded a lot of people from the oversight of ranger. What Mari is referring to here is the fine balance that defined the relationship between rangers and climbers for many decades. It always was evolving, right? But in the mid-70s, the two camps found themselves walking a delicate tightrope of sorts. On one side, the rangers needed the climbers to help with the increasing number of rescues that were happening in the park. On the other side, the climbers needed the rangers to cut them some slack for not paying for camping. For some climbers, it was also a paying job, something that was hard to find for the average Yosemite dirtbag. The relationship worked. To actually do the, the rescues and get lowered down the cliffs and so forth and, and rescue people off El Cap, Mount Watkins, Half Dome, whatever, whatever it was, they had to get the rescue team from Camp 4 
climbers, maybe a dozen, 15 climbers would get a free campsite in camp four. And, you know, for four or five months, this gave them the opportunity to climb. Um, they weren't hassled. Uh, we knew who they were, but the obligation was that they would be available to us, meaning the park service, be available to go on rescues. Climbers like Rick Akamazo and Dale Bard jumped at the opportunity. You got free camping if you were on the, quote, rescue team, but it was, you know, you only went out, you only got paid when you went on a rescues. You got some $7 an hour, but you got an extra $3 an hour uh, of uh, hazard pay from the government. But again, that would that was enough to, to live on for, for a while there. And and they were infrequent, the rescues back then, but I went on, I went on one on El Cap, one on Half Dome, one on Watkins. So I, I, I did a few of them. Yeah. You did, you did the uh, triple of rescues. I did. <laughs> I did. That's, that's cool. But, and they were, they were fun. The helicopter rides were outrageous and excellent. So we always had a lot of fun on them, except when somebody was seriously hurt or killed. And there were friendly moments too. They played a baseball game together and that apparently went well. Uh, and it was a very good relationship. Uh, who, uh, who, who would win out of curiosity? Uh, I think generally maybe half and half. You yeah, know, okay. I mean, it wasn't like we had a whole tournament and there were dozens of games, <laughs> but it was a, you know, that kind of a relationship uh, because we, we did rely on a group of, um, you know, experts. The experts that Butch is referring to included one of the best rock climbers on the planet, the one, the only, Jim Bridwell. I actually fired Jim Bridwell from the rescue fish. <laughs> and, you know, he was probably the world's best climber, certainly at that time. And, uh, uh, you know, Jim and I and a group of about another six or seven went up on a body recovery. And we knew the guy was dead. We, he fell to the bottom of this little one one pitch climb uh, up on um, uh, Middle Cathedral, I think. But Jim ends up doing a like a five seven climb, uh, totally unroped, and you could probably relate to this, Alex. Uh, totally unroped, does one pitch. But the thing was, this was a body recovery. There was no reason to do that kind of climb. He was perfectly capable of doing it. It just was that it was unnecessary. So uh, I fired him from the rescue cache or from the rescue site. And then about, you know, week, 10 days, two weeks later, you know, I, I sort of go to him of hat in hand, if, if you will. And, oh, uh, Jim, we need your help, <laughs> you know, on LCAP. So it was a pretty good relationship. I mean, as you say, there's some ups and downs, but basically uh, Rick Akamazo was a good guy. Uh, lots of good climbers in those days and nice guys. That's a kind of a point of pride that you got to fire and rehire Jim Bridwell. That's, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's my only claim to fame. As the winter of 1976 turned a page to the spring of 1977, the relationship between the rangers and the climbers, it was pretty good, mostly civil. Occasionally, a climber would screw up, get arrested. Yeah, they arrested me, but... There were no bad vibes. It was just, you know, wrong place, right time. But there was also a slight tension, right? There was always an underlying tension that they could always stop the fun. The Park Service was the landlord, employer, sometimes overbearing parent. 
rolled into one. In Camp 4, everybody loved climbing, and everyone was broke because they loved climbing. That was the way. Camp 4 would swell in size in the season. In the winter, the population would drain until all that was left was the most committed climbers. And winter in Yosemite is very grim. I mean, that's the reason that I've never spent a whole winter, (laughs) because there's a reason that uh, the people started to call it the ditch, because... The thing that I think that that the casual climber doesn't appreciate is that as the sun gets lower in the sky in the winter, it no longer crests the rim of the valley. So big swaths of Yosemite Valley just don't get sun at all in the winter. And so it means that if they get wet, you know, it rains or it snows, big chunks of Yosemite Valley are just wet and cold for the whole rest of the winter. Like they're not going to see sunshine again until, until April. And the other thing with Yosemite Valley in the winter is that when you think that cold settles into the bottom of a valley, like a bowl, you know, mm. the, the heat rises, so the cold settles. And so when you're on the valley floor, it is incredibly cold in the winter. And and if you even make it a couple hundred feet uphill, like say to the base of El Cap or the base of some of the walls, it can be it can be lovely in the sun. But when you're camping on the valley floor, it gets really cold and really grim. January 24th, 1977. Ron Likens, an employee at the renowned Awani Hotel, and a friend of his load up backpacks. The pair is heading into the high Sierra backcountry just outside of Yosemite Valley to meet a few friends. The duo drives out of the valley, through the tunnel, hanging a left towards Badger Pass ski area, towards the Ostrander Lake trailhead. They don their backpacks, snowshoes, and set out. Taking the fastest route possible, the two friends hike about eight miles before they begin to lose the trail underneath snow, they follow the path of least resistance. And as the trees begin to thin, as they get to tree line, the pair breaks out into the open above a gentle down-sloping bowl. Below them is Lower Merced Pass Lake, a six-acre mountain lake, which is a dot on their map, but it looks bigger in person. They continue on, when out of the corner of his eye, Lycan spots something that seems very out of place. It's metallic looking as it glares in the sun. Lycan's is almost underneath it, before he realizes it's an airplane wing. Hydraulic oil still dripping from frayed lines, staining the snow below. Holy shit. There's an airplane and it's full of marijuana. It was like it fell from heaven. It literally fell from heaven. The riches fell from heaven. And that that's an amazing story. It really is. We will be back next week with Chapter 2 of Dope Lake. Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape Then Beer. Alex Honnold is our host. Today's episode was produced, written, and edited by me, Fitzcahal, Lauren Delaney-Miller, and Evan Phillips, who also created the original score and mixed this episode. Additional music by Brennan O'Connell, David Swenson, One Links, and Joey Cantor, courtesy of Track Club. Shout out to Ryan Deegan for advising us on aviation elements for this chapter. Social media support from Jake Wheeler. Our executive producers are Ben Endy and Jonathan Retzik for RXR Sports, and Lisey Hendricks and Becca Call for Duct Tape and Beer. Thanks for listening.